Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello Stem Cells at Lunch Digested listeners, I'm Jessica Sells, Public Engagement Officer for the CSCRM. Today I'll be speaking with Dr Sandrine Thuré. Thank you for joining us today. Um, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your career path that has led you to where you are today? Well, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Beautiful view uh, in the <laughs> tower all the way on the top. Um, so yeah, so now I have a research lab uh, and, and to reach that, uh, you know, uh, that type of, of career, well, if, if I go backwards uh, all the way to you know, the equivalent to the A-level, basically what we have in front is mm-hmm. a baccalaureate. So I did a, a science uh, baccalaureate, you know, hardcore math a bit of biology, chemistry, physics, and all the rest. Uh, and then I went on to study even further math, so two, two, two years of just pure mathematics, which are quite intense. And, and, but then in France, they allow you to then choose whatever you want to do after, so going to some kind of polytech- polytechnic school where you can choose what you want to study. And then, then I moved on to study bioengineering, mm-hmm. so being uh, more and more interested into biology and applying all the math theory I had learned in the context of, of biology. So I did that for another three years. So you end up in France with what we call an engineering degree after five years, so the equivalent of a master very much okay. in the US, in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I then uh, worked for a year uh, in Australia. And as a bioengineer, basically you engineer you know, biology. So uh, I work there to uh, you know, do uh, corn engineering, uh, you know. Corn as in yeah, the, 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 the maize, yeah, yeah, yeah. the corn, yeah, yeah, the plant, <laughs> plant engineering, oh, just to cool. make the harvest easier. So basically that was the goal. So very successful, very fun to do, uh, you know, learning a lot about plant biology. Uh, and mostly molecular biology. Mm-hmm. And then I worked further in Australia as well, uh, you know, still in the context of bioengineering, how to make uh, cereal crunchier, so how to develop a coat of the cereal that they stay, you know, crunching your milk and not get all soggy. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, I never thought that there would be someone specifically dedicated yeah, to that process. <laughs> very, very important to eat your cereal. And cereal. So we have a coat... You know, they are coated with, you know, a mix of sugar and chemical to hold it together. Not the healthiest type of cereal, I would say. <laughs> so, and then after that, I thought, well, this is great fun, but I think I, I can apply my skills to maybe something more important than crunchy cereals. <laughs> so enough. then I went, uh, went back to France, and I, then I did a master in aging biology, which covers the whole biology. So not just neuroscience, but, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the, the aging process. And then I moved to Germany to do my PhD uh, in in neuroscience, looking at the development of dopaminergic neurons, uh, where I really got interested into neuroscience and then moved to the US to do my postdoc, where I started to work looking at uh, stem cell biology. So stem cell biology in the context of regeneration after spinal cord injury, but also uh, stem cell biology in the context of neurogenesis, so the production of new neurons, which my lab really is studying at the moment. 
Fantastic. So yeah, you've covered quite a range of things, yes. which is really <laughs> impressive work. And so, as you just said, the research within your lab, lab looks at different factors that control hippocampal neurogenesis. So can you explain, explain what this is for our listeners and why it's important to understand this process? So basically, neurogenesis is the production of new neurons. So how you make new neurons, and we thought for a very long time that you make new neurons only during development. So mm -hmm. once brain development had ended, we thought that you cannot make new neurons, you just lose them. But okay. then recently, we discovered that it's not the case. There are little niches in the brain uh, where we make new neurons. So it's a very small area, uh, which is called the hippocampus, which mm -hmm. is important for learning and memory. So And this, we can call it a privileged area of the adult brain where we can still make new neurons. Uh, so we make, it is estimated that we make around 700 new neurons per day in each hippocampus. Okay. So it doesn't sound like a huge amount because we have billions of neurons in the brain, but this tiny amount of the neuron being made every day in this specific area actually have specific functions. So it's not because there are few that they don't have a role. Mm -hmm. And what we have learning slowly, because it's a new field, is that um, these new neurons generating during adulthood are important for some certain aspect of learning and memory. So like spatial memory, so how to orientate yourself, mm -hmm. how you go from A to B, uh, you know, with spatial clues, like in the environment, how you go from home to school, for example, and you turn left when there is this light and so on. So these neurons are important for learning your way. They are also important for pattern separation, which is the ability of separating similar memories, like um, where you will park your car every day, maybe in a slightly different parking spot, or where you park your bike mm -hmm. you know, at the train station where it's full of bikes, other bikes. You have to find it back in the evening. So it's very similar memory every day. You park your bike, but it's slightly at a different place. Yeah. So this seems to have very particular roles uh, in the context of learning and memory, but we are still learning to understand what they do. But they also are important for mood and emotion. So we know in our animal model where you induce symptoms of depression by stressing the mice, for example, okay. you are going to decrease their level of neurogenesis. So you decrease the amount of neurons they can make in the hippocampus. Wow. And what other groups have shown is that if you give antidepressant, you actually increase neurogenesis and then you alleviate the symptom of depression. But then if you have a mouse model where you can block the process of neurogenesis, then you stop the antidepressant working. Okay. So not all antidepressants work via neurogenesis, but certain, like Prozac, will work via modulating neurogenesis. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's really impressive. So they have, you know, very few number of neurons in a very small area in the brain, but this seems to have a particular role. So this is why we want to understand how can you get some more or how, what are the factors that, you know, push them to, you know, the neurostem cells that, you know, give rise to this neuron. Why are they specific? Why it, does it make them uh, particular? What are the factors in the hippocampus that makes them you know, um, or allow them to give rise to neurons, whereas the rest yeah. of the brain doesn't. Mm -hmm. So if we would understand that, uh, first, you know, there would be implication, for example, well, can we slow down cognitive decline with aging, mm -hmm. for example, because we know as we get older, we still make these new neurons, but we make less and less. Or is there a way that you can prevent onset of depression, you know, in the context of stress, instead of to have a decrease of this new neuron, could we protect them? Mm -hmm. So this is why we think neurogenesis is something important we want to understand further. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so what was the reason that you personally decided to focus your research on this area? So I think having done my PhD in a more developmental neuroscience, meaning uh, my PhD was really trying to understand in the embryo how dopaminergic neurons are being formed. So very pure, fundamental uh, interesting developmental neuroscience. So how are these neurons being formed? With the idea later, if you understand how they are being formed, you know, in the context of Parkinson's disease, maybe you understand better how to, you know, uh, repair the area where you are losing the dopaminergic neurons. Yeah. Uh, but what I found fascinating about the concept of adult neurogenesis is that I was studying the production of neurons in an embryo during development, and then learning and understanding that you still have a micro process, a micro developmental process in an adult brain. I found that fascinating. Yeah. Why this area of the brain is still making new neurons, mm. whereas you think that you know development has ended, but here it's still going on, it's still developing. Yeah. So what's particular? So I thought, you know, that was a nice contrast, but I could still apply what I've learned during my PhD uh, into what I wanted to do next. Uh, and the fact that we also discover that neurogenesis can be modulated by the environment, so diet will have an impact on neurogenesis or exercise, and trying to bring all my skills together, having you know a background in bioengineering, having work in as well food bioengineering, I thought, you know, and this is what we do in the lab as well. We have one side of the lab that looks actually how diet impact on neurogenesis and learning yeah. and memory. So trying to bring a little bit of my knowledge together and build something new. I think those are the best um, kind of studies because you get so much input from different areas, the multidisciplinary aspect. Yeah. It's, it's a much more comprehensive view of, mm -hmm. of the functions of those processes. Um, and earlier you said that this is quite a new field. How, how long has this kind of research been going into the hippocampal neuro? Genesis. So the first, the first, first discovery of evidence of neurogenesis in the adult hippocampus of a rat was made by Altman and Das at MIT in 1962. Uh, but at the time, people didn't believe their work. Okay. So it was ignored. They almost lost their job actually because of <laughs> publishing this study. And then we had to wait the early 90s where we developed new tools to prove and show that, you know, these cells actually come from a stem cell, which then gave rise to a neuron, and it was not already a neuron established. So mm -hmm. the establishment of new tools like retrovirus labeling or, or uh, chemical that intercalate within the DNA that you can inject, and you can prove that, okay, you know, the DNA replicated, so this cell has been divided and has become a neuron, so it must be a new neuron. It yeah. was not generating during development. So yeah. the development of new tool um, as the you know as allowed in the early nineties to really push that field, which is where when my advisor uh, at the Salk Institute where I did my postdoc, uh, Rusty Gage, is one of the pioneers in the field um, that you know have pushed that forward. And now we are at the point where we have a bit of controversy going on. You know, there has been some study proving that neurogenesis exists in humans. Very clever study. I will not get into details. And then earlier this year, there are some group that says, oh, you know, looking at postmortem tissue, we, we don't see the marker uh, that would indicate neurogenesis in the other brain. And then obviously all the fields say, but don't you see all of these other papers that are there? And then two weeks later, there's an entire new paper using the same marker. So no, look, it is there. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, heated debate at the moment to say, you know, some people think that the level of neurogenesis in human is not as high as some of the earlier study uh, mm -hmm. had shown. So I think 
we need to develop new tools that are more robust that everyone can use yeah. uh, to detect or to study neurogenesis in the human. It's very easy in the rodent, in the mouse model, yeah. but in the human we need to to get better. So there's like some hot, it's a hot debated topic at the moment, which is good for the field, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Keeping everyone on their toes yes. and, and pushing it, pushing Absolutely. it forward. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And so you have been a, a group leader for 12 years at, at King's, which is amazing. Um, do you feel like attitudes towards women in science has changed over that time? I think, um, I think in general, uh, Maybe yes and no. It's difficult to say. I mean, what what I try to do is that I try to do, to do my part. I'm part of the, uh, you know, our we have a diversity and inclusion working group, mm-hmm. um, in my faculty, and I'm the gender champion, as they call me, <laughs> uh, because maybe I'm the only woman in my entire unit. We are only very few women as well in our my entire department having their own okay. lab. So as number shows, I would say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we are making an effort to make sure, for example, all the interview panel have to have a female or you know race diversity. Yeah. Um, we are. I'm particular in making big effort that in all the recruitment package we put out or all the advertisement we have a gender neutral tone. So you can have you have software that you can put your advert in, and then it will tell you if it's gender biased oh, depending really on the type of word is being used yeah so and then uh so it's i think it it all has to start from the ground to have more uh women applying to senior position um and and i think we are making big efforts i'm not sure i have seen looking at numbers there's no big changes to be honest yeah uh but Hopefully, you know, this is going to come. The um, seed is being sown. Yes. And hopefully it will grow soon. Hopefully it will. I mean, there's definitely a lot of effort going on at, yeah. at King's to try to, you know, to, to deal with this gender, uh, you know, equality. And then at the moment we have as well our little campaign on gender pay gap. Yes. So, uh, you know, in the UK, basically women started working for free, for free from the 10th of November. Um, so yeah. when you yeah. look at as an overall, right? Yeah, in terms of yearly in term, annual salary. Yeah, yeah. Of you know, globally, you know, women earn you know in the UK around sixteen between sixteen and eighty percent less than men. So that means that from ten of November they are working for free mm. altogether. So yeah. So and then you know, university are not unguilty. So there are the same kind of pay gap as well. You know, within all the Russell Group universities. Yeah. So we have some work to do. Yes. Hopefully it will catch up soon. Yes. <laughs> and so also, not not only are you a group leader, but you're also a reader in neuroscience and mental health here at King's. So what exactly does that involve? So, yeah, so basically, I mean, you know, the title in, in the UK are very funny. When I moved here, I was, <laughs> you know, so, so first you start, you are a lecturer, so, which kind of makes sense, you give lectures. Yeah. Uh, but then you get, you know, Pro, so then, and then you are senior lecturer, which sounds even a bit like you are an old lecturer, uh, and then you get, get promoted before to go through professor. You you get this title of reader, which sounds a bit strange, um, <laughs> uh, because it means that what do you mean you read? Uh, no, no. So basically, it is you know it is uh, you know a 
more an educational title, you are correct, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, it reflects the role you will take, you know, basically I lead a module in uh, neurostem cell and regenerative medicine. So basically it's setting up the module, getting all the lecturers together, actually, you know, some people from this department are teaching on it. Yeah. We have some uh, people that are more looking at the neurostem cell side, which is, you know, on the other side of, of the river in Denmark. So it was really trying to pull a group of lecturers interesting in neuroscience and relative medicine all together uh, in the context of neuroscience. So it's quite, it was quite fun to do and not just stay in my little you know, area, but actually bring people from you know, uh, Guy's campus um, down there uh, at Denmark Hill. So that's mm-hmm. you know, setting up a new module, which is quite exciting. And then you know, giving lectures, you know, some of the people yeah, exactly are running um, uh, courses and module and they ask you to give a lecture on different topic. I'm lucky because most of the time I will be asked to give a lecture on something I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I have some of the big role which is more for uh, graduate students or PhD students. So I coordinate okay. the MRC DTP uh, program, so d- the doctoral de- the training program uh, for uh, the neuroscience section uh, of uh, King's College. So this is quite nice, meeting, you know, all these students and trying to, you know, set up as well transferable skills from them outside mm-hmm. the lab, you know, what should you learn outside the lab as well and, you know, having specific workshop and yeah. know, public engagement, exactly. you know, probably would be one of them. And they did a, a, recently they did a conference, the students. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, so this is one of the role as well, which is quite enjoyable uh, as part of, uh, you know, the education part of my job mm. at King's. So do you find it hard to balance the both? I mean, how many lectures do you have to give per week? Or is it is it must be quite a challenge to balance running a lab and running all of this? Yeah, yeah, sometimes side. it is. And I'm not the only one. I mean, yesterday I saw, you know, my colleague right and left you know, both sides of the office, like literally running around from one lecture, (laughs) you know, and being worried that their student had a big electrophysiology experiment set up and he was not around, you know, to to see it through uh, with the the PhD student. So, yeah, sometimes it's it's a bit, you know, hectic running everything. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, and, you know, if you are lucky to have great students that, you know, uh, are independent, rely on each other, um, and, you know, having a good network of uh, supporting colleagues, then mm-hmm. maybe, you know, this is how you can make it work. But sometimes it's, it is not easy to balance the education and the research at the same time. But to be honest, sometimes it does help because, you know, if you teach in a good class and, or you, let's say you give a stimulating lecture, some of the students might come to see you and this is how you engage with the student. And maybe in a year or two, they might want to join your lab yeah. for a PhD or a project. So in a way, I see that as a positive exchange where, you know, you meet the student firsthand yeah, and you, know, you have the chance to, you know, have a chat with them. And, and yeah. you can see directly as well the impact that you've had in your teaching and the enthusiasm that you've given them, mm-hmm. which is really lovely as well. Um, and so finally, um, what are your hopes and dreams for the future of neurogenesis research? So I think I touched on that a little bit because of, of, of the hot topic and controversial aspect. I think what we really need to do now uh, for some of us that are interested in the aspect of neurogenesis in the human brain is that we need to have a better marker or let's say proxy marker. Obviously we cannot open up the brain uh, of you know participants as they take part in our studies. We can only have access to postmortem tissue which is 
which is not easy because the protein you want to label might decay. So yeah. how could we, you know, how could we label that? How could we do that? How can we move to, you know, a proxy measure of neurogenesis that we can validate? So I think this is going to be the challenge and and what, you know, my lab is working on, some other people are working on. And obviously some people are, you know, taking a different path where they are still using animal model to understand more of this functionality, which, you know, this type of model offer. And for us, we are trying to use APS cells and uh, different factors, different measures, so that we can have relevant uh, data to, to human biology. Great. Thank you so much for talking with me today and um, thank you all for listening to the podcast and please don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at KCL Stem Cells and on Facebook at CSCRF. Thank you.